1: Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians, academics and history obsessives to get angry and start on a quest to purge falsehood from the public mind, burning the heresy of misinformation. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever loyal co-host and solid friend, Kyle Glover. Hello. Now, we may have spoiled you people last week with all our modern talk of engineers, but this week we're flying back to medieval Europe. And to guide us on this pilgrimage into a misunderstood holy land, we are joined by historian of religion and belief, award-winning author and fellow of the Royal Historical Society, Dr. Francis Young. Francis, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much. Feeling angry? I'm always angry about this subject. (laughs) Excellent. You will fit right in here. So you came to us recommended by James Wright, one of our earlier Angry historians, and then you got in touch before we could even make contact. That's how raging you were. But for the history ragers out there, would you kind of give us an insight into your background, your career, how you ended up in this kind of particular speciality that you're in? Well, my doctorate was actually about the English
2: Catholic community after the Reformation, and particularly looking at the supernatural beliefs that they held. And of course, that was something which required going back into the Middle Ages to look at the development of supernatural beliefs, but also going forward into the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, and the transformation of those beliefs. And so from there, I kind of uh, became interested in in the history of religion, but also going beyond that to the broader history of beliefs, supernatural belief, the strange Mm -hmm. things that people believe both now and in the past. And from there, I've gone to look really at this idea of surviving ancient beliefs You know, beliefs perhaps older than, in some cases, older than Christianity, surviving uh, in medieval Europe. And that's, yeah, where a lot of this rage is coming from is the misconceptions that people
1: have about that. Okay, so so let's dive into those rages then. Francis, I can say, welcome to History Rage. With all the emotion and rage that you feel it warrants, would you please tell our squad, our army of History Ragers? what you wish people would just get over.
2: Okay, so what I think people need to get over is the idea that paganism, in some sense, went underground in the Middle Ages. This idea that there was lingering pagan religion, that people were practicing pagan cults in Christian Europe during that period from around about the 12th century through to the 16th century. And it's something which a lot of people still believe. It's Hmm. extraordinary that this has not been dispelled by all the scholarship and all the writing on this, and it persists. So that's what I want to get angry about today.
1: So just to get things started off, and just to make sure we're all on the same page here, how is paganism actually defined, both today and as it would have been seen in the Middle Ages?
2: that's a really good question to start with. And I think it's, it's difficult to give mm. a clear definition of exactly what paganism is, to such an extent that there are some historians who say we shouldn't use the word at all. So they would prefer that we use other terms like pre-Christian religion. Um, if you talk about pre-Christian religion, obviously, it means nothing other than the religion that any people group had before Christianity came along. So if yeah. we're talking here about Western and Central Europe, with a few exceptions, such as Spain, most of Western and Central Europe becomes Christian by about the 12th century. So therefore, whatever religions we find in in that area that predate Christianity, we might call pre-Christian religions. But I'm a, a bit less pessimistic than that. I think we can say that there is such a thing as a pagan Obviously, we've got the examples of Greece and Rome, which give us this this highly developed and sophisticated variety of pagan religions that are going on in the ancient world. The religions of Northern Europe and Central and Eastern Europe, we know less about. But nevertheless, I think there are certain things that we can point to that might make someone a pagan rather than a follower of any other religion. Mm. And one of those things would be that they are following an ancestral religion. So this is not something which somebody has written down in a holy book or claimed to have received some kind of revelation or vision from God or gods, but it's something which is simply inherited. And I think paganism also tends to be more focused on practice than on belief. So it's about doing right. what the ancestors have done. It doesn't necessarily require you to have belief in the modern sense of the word as we would understand it. We don't really know whether you know, people practicing ancient pagan religions even did believe in the gods that they were worshiping. And I'm not sure it really matters. And there are other factors as well that we could bring in. So for example, the offering of sacrifice and sacrifice could take a number of different forms. It could be in its most gruesome form, human sacrifices. We know the the ancient Britons used to practice that at the time that the Romans uh, came to Britain. But you've also got animal sacrifice, very widespread uh, practice that you find uh, throughout pre-Christian religions and even simpler forms of sacrifice, like libation, where somebody just gets some alcohol or drink and pours it on the ground, maybe as an offering to the gods yeah. of the dead, or or pours grain onto the ground, or burns a little bit of salt. That's what the Romans used to do to the the domestic gods, the lares, and that also is sacrifice. But it's um, yeah, all of those things, and of course polytheism. Polytheism tends to be something that we would associate with paganism or animism, the belief that there are spirits in living things or in rocks or In features of the landscape, so there, you know, it's difficult to give an easy definition of what paganism is, but I think that there are certain characteristics
1: of pre-Christian religion that we can legitimately call pagan. So, as a complete beginner to this, uh, you know, we're talking. uh, Would examples of this be, uh, you know, we we look at like the Norse culture and things like that. So you've got you've you've got your polytheism there. You've got your polytheism. You've got your polytheism there. No belief in many gods, that would be polytheism. Yeah. You've got poly, polytheism there, then you've got, you know, you've got that history of sacrifice and so forth. And like you say, you've got Rome, you've got Greece, Egypt. Are we talking, But well, we're not talking things like Judaism here, are we? Which would predate Christianity, but would not be considered a pagan.
2: Yes, that's right. And I think when you look at uh, Judaism, although obviously you've got in you know, second temple Judaism, you've got the presence of sacrifice and the practice of sacrifice that on its own, just as as one thing is not enough to say that it's pagan. Uh, And the fact that you've got there, the worship of a single God, you know, understood as a a God that you do need to believe in, and you do have to have some kind of relationship with that God is very different from what we find in paganism. So so yes, you you can find certain characteristics uh, of paganism within other religions, but all of those characteristics together, I think we'd probably call pagan
1: and um, if I could just throw in a question that, that we hadn't prepped you for, really, when you look at, you mentioned the um, ancient Britons uh, that we got there. Now, we previously, one of our previous ragers, Caroline Nicolay, who came on to do an excellent episode on there was civilization here before Rome turned up. She was explaining basically just how difficult it is to kind of research and find out about these, I use the term in inverted commas, pagan religions, such as the ancient Britons predating the Romans you know how have you kind of gathered that that information in the research that you've done
2: yes it's a big problem trying to understand exactly what it was that the ancient Britons did um, from a religious point of view and what they believed and really most of what we know it comes from archaeology but the trouble is that most of the archaeology is Roman But it's those things that the Romans did or those gods that the Romans venerated that seem to point back to an earlier native British culture. But we always have to be careful because you you bear in mind that you're always looking at this kind of colonial overlay that's been put on top of the original British culture. And, and, you know, there's one possibility, which is that actually when the Romans arrived, the ancient Britons had no clue about what religion was. Uh, they had no concept of religion as something separate from any other things that they did in their life. And the Romans almost had to invent religion as a separate sphere of life. And, you know, what the Britons were doing was simply something that they reflexively did, you know, rituals that they performed that were just a normal part of life and wouldn't have been seen as, you know, a separate sphere of life. But we just don't know, you know, this is the trouble. Uh, We don't have enough evidence. We don't have anything written down Mm -hmm. by the Britons themselves. We only have these rather stereotype views of the druids for example which are transmitted to us by roman authors
1: yeah so let's kind of get my head straight on this then if you if you're not required to actually kind of believe in a god going back to the judaism comment that we mentioned there earlier i mean are we looking potentially here theoretically here at uh, at something like we would have today with superstition where you're you, you're you're carrying out a small possibly even minor insignificant ritual that's that's thought to have a pleasant effect on your future life. So, you know, you're not tripping over cats, you're not walking under ladders, all these things that we still have today. Are we talking a kind of similar mindset back then?
2: Well, I'm not a fan of the S word. uh, Yes.
1: (laughs) Um, And that's
2: mainly because it's a pejorative. You know, it's it's a slightly insulting thing to say about people that they're superstitious. But the state of mind that you describe, where you're doing things just in case... You know, you're not necessarily saying I believe that if I, you know, don't throw salt over my shoulder, then something bad will happen. But, you know, there's no harm done by doing what my grandmother always taught me to do. Uh, And it's that sort of idea that, you know, better safe than sorry. And certainly, you know, when Rome converts to Christianity, you have a lot of people saying, well, it's not that I really believe in the old gods. But it's like if we abandon sacrifices to Jupiter Mm. on the Capitol... What if bad things happen? You know, bad yeah. things have happened before when we've abandoned religious cult. And it's, it's not that these people are necessarily, you know, are ardent defenders of paganism against Christianity or don't want Christianity. They're just being cautious. They just, they don't want something terrible to happen as a result of the abandonment of these ancient practices. And I think that's, that's the best way to understand what might be called the pagan mindset. It's about yeah. just, you know, b- uh, you know, belt and braces Making sure that, you know, you do everything possible to avoid the wrath of the gods, which might mean bad things happen.
1: Yeah, because I suppose if the gods turn out to not exist, well, no harm done. Exactly. If the gods essentially turn out to exist, and let's talk all of them here, you don't want to piss any one of them off, you know, thunderbolts and smoking feet aside. So what examples do we have then of the pagans in the Middle Ages? And who are the real pagans? And I'll throw this in there as well, because you mentioned it in one of your emails to me. It'd be good to feed in there examples of, you'd mentioned Christianity, that is just as weird and interesting as people think paganism is.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, Christianity, of course, expands slowly throughout what we call the Middle Ages, from the Eastern Mediterranean into the whole of Western and Central Europe. And so this is not something that happens overnight. Uh, This confrontation between Christianity and paganism is an ongoing thing until about the year 1000. And then it takes a slightly different form, which I'll mention in a moment. But yeah, you've got this, um, you know, expansion, first of all, into the Roman Empire. But there you've got this one singular historical event, which because of the particular characteristics of the Roman Empire means that Christianity can spread very quickly indeed. And that is, of course, that the Emperor Constantine in the year 312, he he, he fights this battle at the Milvian Bridge, sees this vision of the, 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 the Cairo symbol uh, accompanied by the words uh, in this sign conquer and paints that on his soldiers' shields and they all go into battle with a Christian symbol and win. And so he promises, if you like, to allow the toleration of Christianity in the Roman Empire and eventually himself becomes a Christian. And Mm -hmm. that essentially turns the Roman Empire over a fairly short period of time into a Christian Empire. But the Roman Empire at that point is already under tremendous strain and collapsing. And you've got this outer uh, frontier where you've got people who aren't Christian. And some of those people come into the Roman Empire and they become Christianized as a result of their contact with the Romans, the, the Goths being uh, an excellent example of that. Although the Goths awkwardly ap- adopt a form of Christianity that they're not supposed to, they become Aryans, um, which is a heretical form of Christianity and that causes huge problems. Uh, but yeah, you've got those people who are Christianized by coming in, uh, settlers, if you like, from uh, the barbarian lands, you know, to, to use a, a a popularly used term, although of course, you know, we know they weren't really barbarians. They were very sophisticated people. But they they are Christianized by contact. And then, of course, you've got the expansion into lands that had never previously been Christian or never previously been Roman. And one good example of that is Ireland. So you've got uh, the mission of St. Patrick. Patrick, of course, comes from Britain, which had been part of the Roman Empire and had been to some extent Christianized. And Mm -hmm. Patrick goes to this completely alien land, the island of Ireland, and to bring Christianity And in order to do that, he also has to bring certain Roman concepts with him as well, because Christianity is being transmitted through this Roman medium. And then you've already mentioned uh, the Norse lands, which again are late to Christianization. Germany, similarly, it's English missionaries, Anglo Saxon missionaries who go to Germany, like St. Boniface, is probably the most famous one, uh, in the 8th century to try and convert the Germans, which they do. And then the Germans, in turn, along with the English, go to Scandinavia. To convert the people who used to be the Vikings, of course, uh, and turn them into Christians, which seems quite a significant achievement, given the destruction that was wrought by those raiders uh, from Scandinavia on Christian monasteries and things like that. But there are certain people in Europe who are particularly resistant to Christianization. who put up a real fight. Uh, And in fact, they turn out not to be the Scandinavians, but the Slavs or certain groups of Slavs. The Pallabian Slavs, for example, the Wends, uh, these are people who live in what is today the eastern part of Germany, part of Denmark, the island of Bornholm, is -hmm. uh, is inhabited by the Pallabian Slavs. And so by this time, of course, the church is moving into crusading mode. And the idea of having a holy war against the enemies of the faith is coming into fashion. And so this becomes a new mode of interacting with non-Christians both the the Muslims, of course, in the Levant, but also the pagans who refuse to convert. And the most resistant people of all are not the Slavs, but in fact, the Balts. And these are the people who live in what is today Lithuania and Latvia, so on the, the eastern Baltic coast. And these are the people who absolutely refuse to adopt Christianity. And in fact, the last people in Europe to be converted to Christianity are the Lithuanians, and they hold out. Until thirteen eighty-seven. And even when they do convert, it's very much on their own terms. They were never conquered and subdued by the Crusaders and convinced yeah. to convert in that way. So it is a it is a long drawn-out process.
1: So when you mention, you know, the church goes into crusading mode then, um, do we have because I always think of crusading as Pilate and retaking Jerusalem and and all that stuff that you see. Are we we calling crusades into these areas and and trying to conquer and trying to smash them into Christianity?
2: Yes. uh, I mean, they themselves call them crusades. Um, Military orders are established specifically in order to do this. The two most famous ones would be the Teutonic Order uh, and the Livonian Sword Brethren. These are mostly made up of Germans uh, who are doing it for much the same reasons as people are going to the Middle East. So they're receiving the promises of remission of penance through indulgences uh, that they will get to heaven faster if they uh, uh, go on these campaigns. And they are living lives as military monks. You know, these are celibate men who are living in community, uh, learning fighting skills, uh, setting up, in effect, their own kind of principality. Uh, So what the Teutonic order do is that they take over a Baltic territory called Prussia. And you know, today when we hear the word Prussia, we think Germany. Uh, we think you know, um, yeah, the, the, you know, the, the the fearsome you know Prussian army of the 18th century and so forth, uh, and Bismarck. But of course, the Prussians were originally a completely unrelated people. They're they're a Baltic people. They are people who are more closely related to the Lithuanians and the Latvians. But the Teutonic Order take over that area and com- completely over the course of centuries, supplant those original pagan people, those Baltic-speaking people. And then the Livonian sword brethren, they go to Livonia, which is what today we would call Estonia and Latvia, so that kind of northern yeah. part of the Baltic states, and they set up their own state there, their own little monastic state. But, of course, these things become quite venal over time. You know, they, they become more interested in attracting patronage and money and their own internal yeah. affairs, as well as these kind of seasonal raids into the territories of the pagans, and so it all becomes, you know, more complicated than simply just, you know, going in and killing the pagans. It becomes a, a a bit of give and take in a way, because there's got to be some form of coexistence, even if it's quite violent coexistence.
1: Yeah, they're not bringing their own farmers in with them, are you? They're going to have to, if they want to establish a state in there, they're going to have to involve the people that are already in it. Particularly if, like you say, they're as stoic as. Uh, as the Bolts are, even now.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's the classic kind of settler colonialist dynamic where they've, you know, they're there. They may well be, you know, more powerful and militarily superior, but they've still got to live. Um, you know, they still need the help of the people that they're attempting to, you know, subjugate.
1: So, throw in a few examples then of the the weird and interesting Christianity.
2: Oh yeah, well, I mean, I think this is where a lot of the problem arises, and this is what what I get so cross about: is that people look at strange things in Christianity. Gargoyles would be an example of this, you know, gargoyles on churches, and people say, "Oh, look at this! This, this can't possibly be Christian. This has got to be pagan." Look, there's a there's a man showing his arse at us. You know, this must be a, a sign that these are joyous fertility celebrating pagans because he's got his junk out and so forth. But, you know, that's not the case at all. Medieval people, you know, anytime you look at medieval vernacular poetry is very, very bawdy. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, people are willing to put this kind of stuff on churches, uh, you know, partly because it's outside the church and the church is a multi-purpose building. It's not just a building that's being used for the purely sacred. It is a, a mingling of the sacred and the profane the classic one the green man um, now the green man i think Here we are, go. a lot of our listeners i'm sure will know that the green man was actually invented in 1939 by lady raglan a member of the folklore society what she did was she wrote this brilliant article you know it's wonderfully constructed but she draws together all these different things like you know motifs from art of uh, a face that have got, has got um, Uh, uh, foliage growing out of the mouth and sometimes out of the eyes, you know, a kind of a man caught in a bush kind of thing. And she links that with folk customs like uh, Jack in the Green. So on May Day, you'd have a man dressed up in foliage, you would dance uh, and, you know, would be part of those festivities. And she draws a conclusion from this. Oh, you know, this must be examples of a pagan fertility deity who is associated with vegetation and the growth of vegetation, who survives by being represented in the church. And because these images of the green man, they're often in bosses on the ceiling, they're hidden away in obscure corners of a church. And you know, therefore, she comes to this conclusion, this must be paganism in some way surviving and enduring. And then another one is the Sheila a Gig. This is uh, from Ireland, but also known in, in England and Scotland. And the Sheelan a Gig is a female figure who has got a large open vulva. And sometimes she's got her fingers inside or opening up her private parts, basically. Uh, And this, again, people looked at this, oh, my goodness, this must be a pagan fertility goddess. But there are other explanations available. Um, I mean, in the case of the Sheila in a gig, and in the case of the green man, we don't have completely satisfactory explanations of what they are. But that doesn't mean that we can't say what they are pretty much definitely aren't. Um, and the idea that the green man is a pagan deity is is pretty ridiculous because, well, we don't have any evidence of any pagan deities who are anything like the green man in the records that we have of pre-Christian paganism. Yeah. And similarly with the Sheila Gig. well, we just don't know how pagan goddesses of fertility were represented by the pre-Christian inhabitants of Ireland or indeed Britain. So therefore, it seems rather presumptuous to say, oh, she must be a pre-Christian fertility goddess. But we do know that there was plenty of preaching going on in the 12th century at the time when these figures appear against, you know, the vice of fornication or against lustfulness, and particularly misogynistic preaching against, you know, lustful um, women. And therefore, the idea that these were put on churches as a warning against women to avoid the danger of lust, that seems, you know, applying Occam's razor at the very least, it seems a more plausible explanation than to say that she's some kind of uh, some kind of fertility deity. So uh, those are good examples. Or, or um, take the case of Saint Guinefort, uh, perhaps the weirdest of my all favorite saint. medieval saints, the dog-headed saint. Yeah, um, really, really weird. Uh, in fact, he's portrayed as completely a dog. You know, he is a dog who is said to have saved people, and therefore. Was buried and given the honors of a saint. But actually, it's not quite as weird as it seems because we do have this example in Byzantine iconography uh, mm-hmm. from Constantinople of uh, St. Christopher being portrayed with the head of a dog, which again seems insane, but actually, it's because in medieval cartography and medieval geography, the idea that people who live at the edge of the world will have monstrous features is something that's generally accepted, and, and Christopher is said to have been a a foreigner from a distant land and therefore giving him the head of a dog doesn't seem as strange to people back then as it might seem to us. So I I think we should never underestimate the weirdness of uh, medieval Christianity. And it's just lazy to say, oh, you know, this is too weird to be Christian. What do you think Christianity is? Do you think Christianity is what people were doing in, in, you know, the local nonconformist chapel, in Victorian England, you know, Christianity is more than that. Christianity is something that's been evolving for centuries and has changed a great deal over those centuries. It's a vast cultural field into which many things have evolved, many things have changed, and therefore you can't just, you know, say this doesn't look Christian, therefore
1: it can't be Christian.
2: So that's what makes me
1: cross. Yeah. I'm particularly keen on your examples as well, because you very much give the impression there that any modern person like making assumptions about paganism Really, just thinks about fertility, and that's the only thing that pagans think about as well. Absolutely, and that—that I think it goes back to this Victorian obsession with
2: the idea that paganism is about fertility, and I think that comes from Victorian repression of sexuality. Uh, You know, people are obsessed with this because it's something they're not really supposed to be thinking about uh, in polite company, and so it sort of it it becomes submerged and, and transferred, if you like, into the study of anthropology. Uh, that, you know, there's this fascination with human beings in their natural state, uh, perhaps because there's a consciousness that, you know, Victorian life doesn't really allow human beings to experience their natural state. And yeah, it it becomes an obsession of Victorian anthropologists. It's all about fertility. Uh, Paganism was joyful. Paganism was life affirming. Paganism had a positive view of sex. Christianity, in contrast, has introduced repression and messed all our lives up and so forth and so on. You know, when you actually look at the sources we have for ancient paganism, I mean, you know, some of that may be true to a certain extent, but, you know, these pre-Christian societies were subsistence societies. Uh, They were places where life was nasty, brutish and short, in much the same way that life was nasty and brutish and short for much of the Christian Middle Ages for many people. And the idea that pagans were living radically different lives with radically different mores from their Christian neighbours, I'm not entirely convinced by. I mean, clearly there were differences, but I think broadly speaking, the evidence points to these being pretty conservative societies in the way that many, you know, subsistence societies tend towards, you know, social and moral conservatism. So, yeah, the, the evidence does not bear out these Victorian fantasies.
1: Yeah, so paganism is uh, joyful and free in everything Victorian society isn't.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your borough purchase at borough.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST. You mentioned your messages to us and in some of the articles that you've written, um, the idea that pagan survival might be an anti-Catholic message, sort of propaganda from around the time of the Reformation. Um, Would you want to go into a bit more detail about that?
2: Yeah, this is a legacy that, you know, rather like the Victorian obsession with fertility, Mm. we're always having to deal with this legacy uh, of propaganda, Reformation propaganda in the perceptions that we have or the popular perceptions that we have of paganism. It was a standard slur at the time of the Reformation for the reformers, so those who were on the Protestant side, to say to the Catholics, you're basically pagans, aren't you? You know, your, your version of Christianity is not worth the paper it's written on. You allow all these corrupt practices like the veneration of the bones of saints, like people mm-hmm. going on pilgrimages, like people washing in holy wells. This stuff is basically pagan, isn't it? And this idea that Catholicism is rebadged paganism or it's just, you know, paganism with a Christian veneer on the top of it, becomes very popular in the 16th century. Uh, there's a guy called John Bale in England, uh, who's a former Carmelite friar, but he becomes a Protestant, renounces his former ways. And he yeah, tries to portray the ceremony of the mass as being exactly the same as a pagan sacrifice. If you are a, a, a Catholic, you're basically a, a, an idolater, you're a pagan, you worship images, you are no better than those Greeks and Romans and so forth. And I think we've imbibed a lot of that. But what we've done hmm. is we've kind of turned it on its head. So we've said that, you know, yes, Catholicism is sort of pagan, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. So you'll find uh, among a, in a lot of popular commentary on Catholicism today in Catholic countries, particularly, um, take Ireland, for example, people who will say, you know, our Catholic heritage is great. But the reason our Catholic heritage is great is because it preserves Memories of pagan gods and goddesses that have been converted into Christian saints, classic example being the claim that St. Brigid of Kildare, the most important of Irish uh, woman saints, is in fact a, 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 the, the, the Celtic goddess brigid, and there's really no evidence that that's true um, but that's <laughs> you know off, a, a story that's often told and yet, I think what people are un, unaware of is that this whole narrative, the idea that Catholicism is basically paganism was invented to discredit Catholicism. It's, a, it's a, a bigoted view of Catholicism that views it as a kind of lower form of Christianity that's incapable of discernment that these missionaries were just so stupid that they just allowed people to carry on with their pagan customs. And it wasn't until the Reformation that things were purified. Um, and so I think it's very dangerous you know, when, when we're adopting a view that we think is positive if that view is actually mm-hmm. rooted in something that was originally a form of bigotry, then that's, yeah, that's not a, that's not a great place to be, really. And it's, it's pretty unfair to those people, like medieval Catholics, for example, to say, oh, well, they were all basically pagans. They just didn't know it.
1: If you're, if you're coming and going back to kind of the comments you made about crusading and setting up your own state and everything like that, as I said, we've got to involve the people. So, I mean, wouldn't there realistically be an element of... You're bringing Christianity into a country in order to make that country Christian. You can't completely U-turn everybody's life and belief system around like that. You've got to kind of meet them halfway. Is there an element of that actually happening in these these conquests?
2: Yes, absolutely. And this is what we call syncretism. Uh, Syncretism is where you've got a kind of mixed religion. Um, Or rather mixed religious practice is the way that I'd put it, where there are elements that have been brought in by missionaries, but other things that carry on. And something that we find in all um, or nearly all European societies that undergo Christian conversion is that the missionaries will start off by doing things like baptizing people, by instructing them about the existence of a supreme God. But they won't really do much about, you know, changing the ways people get married, changing the ways mm-hmm. that people you know, conduct burial rites and so forth. It's only a couple of centuries later that they start getting interested in that and start getting kind of obsessed with stamping out, you know, any pre-Christian survivals. And this is where I think it's perhaps better to use the word pre-Christian than to use the word pagan, because yeah. just because something is a ritual, perhaps a rite of passage or something connected with the beginnings and ends of life and so forth. Just because it's a ritual doesn't mean that it's necessarily paganism, that it's, you know, pre-Christian religion. And I think we have to be careful with syncretism, that where a society clearly contains elements of pre-Christian ritual, it doesn't necessarily mean that that society is pagan. Because if people have accepted a, a cosmology in the broad sense, where they say, there is now a single supreme God. And of course, many people accepted a supreme God because they said, well, our gods failed to stop the missionaries. Our gods failed to stop the crusaders or the invaders or whoever else has brought Christianity. Therefore, we no longer have faith in our gods. We can no longer trust them. We've got to accept this supreme God because this supreme God has shown his superior power. And so you've got that kind of way of thinking going on a lot of the time. And yeah, I think that you can you can call a society Christian in the broadest sense, even if there's a very imperfect understanding in that society of what Christianity is is really about, or, you know, not very much piety or devotion or anything like that. Because people have essentially stopped the cult of the pagan gods in any meaningful sense. They're no longer performing sacrifices. They might well be doing a lot of, you know, other pre-Christian rituals, but they're no longer you know giving their primary veneration to those gods so i'm a, I'm a yeah I, I would accept what you say absolutely that yeah the, the missionaries are going to go along with what people are already doing and they're going to accept a lot of that into the way that things are done but what i don't think is that that makes the society still pagan
1: okay so if you say this myth has been with us well basically since pre-Christian times uh, has been reinforced by the reformation and stays with us today how's it how's it obstructing a our understanding of the middle ages and religion and also kind of your work trying to find out the actual truths about the middle ages and religion
2: well i think it's obstructing us in two different ways um the first way Is that it's impoverishing our understanding of what Christianity really was in the Middle Ages. I think one of the problems people have is that they get confused between Christianity and the church. Um, The church is an institution, Mm. very powerful institution, uh, which was always trying to gain more influence over people's lives. But of course, you could be part of the Christian faith, you could be somebody who professed the Christian faith, at least nominally without having very much interest in what the church did or, you know, even much respect for the church. And certainly the church might not have very much regard for you if it found that your beliefs were not up to scratch. So Christianity is a much broader Mm. phenomenon than, you know, those spheres of life that were under the jurisdiction of the church. And I think we've lost our sense of how broad Christianity was, how strange popular Christianity was. And if we're constantly just looking for pagan survivals, we fail to appreciate You know, what the true nature of Christianity was, what was the range of deviation from what the church wanted people to believe. But the other way in which it obstructs our understanding of the Middle Ages is that, as I've mentioned, there really were people in medieval Europe who refused to accept Christianity. There really were pagans in the true sense of the word, mainly in uh, Eastern Europe, in the Baltic. And if we're constantly looking to say, oh, You know, there was pagan survival going on in rural France, or there was pagan survival going on in the Yorkshire Wolds, or whatever. We're sort of shortchanging those real pagans and saying, well, you know, you weren't that special, but they really were quite special. You know, to hold out in your own faith, to have the confidence in your ancestral faith that you're not going to accept Christianity for hundreds of years, makes them Mm. extraordinary. And that's something which is inadequately appreciated. So, you know, I work on British history. Uh, medieval and early modern British history but I also work on the history of the Baltic and I work on Baltic paganism so I see kind of both sides of this and the negative impact that this myth that paganism went underground underneath medieval Christianity that it has on on both of those on both of those areas of study basically.
1: Okay and moving forward then is bringing it up to like the modern day pop culture can't help at all. Uh, I'm particularly pointing my finger of suspicion at Robin of Sherwood here, which is thoroughly enjoyable and older than Kyle. Oh, saw, so I saw that I watched the repeats. Thank you very much. Yeah, he's still older than you. Yeah. Um, I mean, given kind of pop culture references like that, and given the absolute wealth of green man stuff you see all over the hippie witchy shops all the festivals i mean we go to the Tewkesbury medieval festival it's everywhere how on earth do we ever beat this i think a
2: large part of trying to beat it is getting people to understand a distinction that i've already mentioned that that mm. distinction between christianity and the church uh and to 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 really, I suppose, allow positive evaluations of popular medieval Christianity to develop. I think there's a, a misconception people have that medieval people were little robots who were on strings being controlled by the church. And you had the Pope basically making people do what he wanted them to do. And of course, you know, medieval people were just like us. They didn't want to be told what to do any more than we want to be told what to do their Christianity was extremely diverse. Where they differ from us is that Christianity, for most medieval people in in Western Central Europe, was the only framework available to them within within which to understand the world. But of course, they ran with that in an incredibly creative way and created these extraordinary, weird versions of Christianity and strange interpretations and additions to Christianity that allowed them to make sense of their lives and their life experience we 're different because you know we, we live in a, a multicultural pluralist society where we 're free to adopt or not to adopt any framework of interpretation that we choose, but that doesn 't mean that medieval people were any less creative than we are, so I think we, we need to recognize their creativity. so I wish we had more historical fiction that was really rigorous in showing the diversity of medieval Christianity and the creativity of medieval Christianity. I wish we had more historical tv and films that delved into that and that we set aside some of these lazy stereotypes of you know the, uh, the the wise woman who goes into the woods and venerates the pagan deities and the idea that paganism has somehow lingered for hundreds of years behind christianity and so forth and the idea that christianity is this kind of um destructive force purely destructive force and of course you know, mm. medieval christianity in many of its expressions was absolutely awful incredibly destructive and genocidal at times but this is something which everyone was part of or almost everyone in medieval europe everyone experienced it differently everyone interpreted it differently everyone had their own their own take and their own life experience and i think that's that's something which is difficult for us in a pluralistic society to get our heads around That when you're stuck within a particular interpretive framework, Mm -hmm. all your creativity and all your rebelliousness and all your uh, exploration has to take place within that framework. And yet that
1: seems to be true of medieval people. Well, thank you. I'd just like to throw in one kind of final question, again, that we haven't kind of pre-briefed you on yet. But you always get this same sort of thing trotted out around about Christmas that, oh, Christmas is just christianity co-opting saturnalia the old pagan festival and all that yeah i can see rage going there already yeah okay to but to throw a little bit of a curveball in there that is a christian festival that people associate with actually being pagan in its roots have we got anything that people think is pagan that's actually christian in terms of festivals
2: well, Easter would be a good example
1: yes. of that um, in that,
2: you know, we have this word Easter, which most people will know if they know anything about history, that Easter comes from a goddess who is mentioned by Bede, Eostra. And it's quite possible that actually Bede was making that up. Um, and in fact, the, he didn't know any more than we do who was the, you know, pre-Christian Anglo-Saxon goddess of spring. Uh, and in fact, you know, it could be that even his perception that Easter, which which in, in, in and of itself, Easter just means spring, that, you know, that, that that is something which, you know, was of pagan origin. But yeah, we, we just don't know. But what we can be certain of is that the way that, you know, we have come to, no Easter. It's purely a Christian festival so a lunar calendar, which drive a Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the idea that Easter is in pagan is a pretty laughable idea. I mean, even more laughable uh, perhaps than the idea that Christmas has pagan roots. But yeah, I think you know, with all these things, you have to look at them in terms of what is basic to human beings. And and you know, from an anthropological view, point of view, it's pretty basic the human beings living in the Northern Hemisphere, you're going to have a big celebration in the middle of winter because things are pretty bleak and pretty dark and things are turning round around the time of the solstice. The days are getting short and then they're getting longer again. Were you going to do something to mark that. And in the same way, spring is going to be a big deal if you're living in the Northern Hemisphere. So looking back at pre-Christian societies and finding that they weren't celebrating a big festival at the same time that we celebrate Christmas, well, they weren't celebrating a big festival in the spring, around the same time that we celebrate Easter, it would be bizarre, uh, because you'd expect that in a, you know, an agricultural society yeah. in the northern hemisphere. And yet to say that, well, in that case, there must be a link between all of the festivals you know from down since the Stone Age and Christmas, is, it doesn't follow. Um, it's a, it's a, a logical <laughs> error, really, to say
1: that. And, yeah, it's a phrase that we often say on History Rage is, yeah, when you put it like that, it it seems blindingly obvious. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Francis. I was, and I stress was, guilty of pretty much every misconception that you've gone through and defeated today, and I'll go and punish myself accordingly. But thank you very much. Thank Thank you very much for coming on and bringing all this mythical rage. Thank you very much. You're welcome. If you would like to know more than uh, History Rages, then you can start by reading any of the 18 books that Francis has co-authored and authored. And we're going to put links to as many of those as we can in the History Rage Bookshop. Uh, you can read articles and posts on his website, www.drfrancisyoung.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at Dr Francis Young, um, which is really an entertaining feed. I couldn't recommend it enough. So once again... It's been an honour and a privilege, Francis, and thank you very much for getting in touch and coming on board, and we hope we'll see you again at some point. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. And if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon as your £5 per month will get you early episodes, the invite to book questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, thanks a lot for listening. Stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.